there. Genesis 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain uh, that they had brought from Egypt, uh, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send out our brother with us, we will go down and buy buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to uh, tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said, said, to, his, uh, said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will rise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, uh, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother in Benjamin. And as for me... I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took his present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin, and they rose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, uh, he said to the steward of his house, Bring them into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men. Uh, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man uh, did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house, and the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he might assault us and fall upon us uh, to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Ju- Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each, uh, and there was each man's money in the mouth of the sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid, your God... And the God of your father has put treasure in your sack for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. uh, And when the man had brought uh, the men into Joseph's house and given uh, given them water, they had washed their feet. And when they had given their donkeys uh, fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard uh, that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought uh, into the house to him the present... Uh, that they had with him, and bowed down with him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, uh, hurried out 
For his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and then... Uh, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate uh, with him by themselves, because the Egyptians do not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the uh, Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken from them uh, from Joseph's table, but uh, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you uh, for the truth of your word, and uh, we thank you that you give us your spirit to teach us uh, an ancient text that is so old and seems so foreign to us. Uh, um, We ask that you would be our teacher and apply uh, the words uh, of the Bible, the words of Genesis, um, and apply them to our lives here in Bellingham in uh, 2013. And... uh, and would you uh, um, just give us hearts uh, to hear and to receive and to be challenged, and would you draw us to the knowledge of your grace and your kindness and your glory. And um, I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here. Um, just bless them, encourage them in this time. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So um, since uh, September, we've been looking at this last portion of the book of Genesis, and, uh, which is the story of Joseph. And um, if you haven't been a part uh, or missed a few Sundays, let me just kind of summarize the story thus far, where we've been. Um, Back in chapter 37, uh, Jacob has 12 sons. And his sons uh, decide in chapter 37 to sell Joseph. And uh, they sell him to some slave traders who bring him to Egypt and he becomes a slave in Egypt. Actually, he's in slavery and he's in prison for 12 years. And he doesn't know what's going on, why God has brought him there. God's kind of planning this whole thing out, and he sends him in, uh, into, into uh, slavery, then into prison. And then he gets this opportunity to uh, interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And it turns out he knows how to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. That These dreams say that Egypt is going to have seven years of abundance of grain, and then they're going to have seven years of famine. And so... Uh, uh, Pharaoh says, well, okay, we got this crisis that's coming. We need some kind of administrator who's going to take care of all this. So he makes Joseph the prime minister of Egypt. And so he organizes this whole relief effort where he gathers all the grain um, for seven years, and then he um, sells grain to the the whole ancient Near East and North Africa and uh, this relief effort to just uh, save nations from this famine. And now it's been 22 years since his brothers sold him into slavery. And uh, they, his family, his brothers, actually become a part of... There's some of the nations that are coming. They're in the famine, and they need food, so they come to Egypt, and they meet him. And uh, they make two trips down to Egypt. The first trip we saw last week, uh, Daniel uh, uh, taught through last week in Genesis 42, and now we're reading about the second trip uh, that the brothers are making uh, down to Egypt. And the key storyline in this whole narrative is that there are two of Jacob's brothers who emerge as the prominent brothers in the family. Joseph and Judah. 
They become the leaders of the family, and they emerge. And what this story is really about is how all these things that are happening, you know, they got a famine, they got uh, slavery, they've got prison, they've got um, dreams. All of these things are God's orchestration to make these two brothers into real men, men of God, men of love, to shape them. And he's actually preparing them for this climactic meeting that they're going to have in, uh, in the next chapter that we'll look over at the next couple of weeks. But God is preparing them as men uh, to be men of God for this, for this moment, to be men of his kingdom, men of his people, who he wants them to be. And, um, and so this morning, what I want to do is, uh, as we look at this passage, is use this passage as a meditation, as a guide on manhood. What does the Bible say it means to be a man? What, what, it, what kind of men does God want to make Joseph and Judah into? And actually, I think it applies quite a lot uh, to our situation. And actually, the question of man is a big, is a big deal in our culture. Um, you know, I, the statistics that I've heard is that half the kids that um, are growing up in our culture right now are grew up without, without a man in the home, without a dad. And, um, and actually, I, I've talked to someone in our church who they had five families living around their house here in Bellingham, and, and none of them, none of those homes had a man in it a man present. And of course, these moms are remarkable, are strong, that uh, they're serving their children, are devoted, hardworking, and, and absolutely should be commended for the love that they're, that they're showing to these children. But there is an absence of manhood in our culture. And so it's an important thing for us to talk about. What, is, what does the Bible say about manhood? Now, I know for some of you, when you hear that, you say, oh, biblical manhood. <laughs> Uh, not, you know, that might be kind of frightening to you. What are you going to say? Are you going to bring us back to the Middle Ages? Um, a view of manhood where man's kind of the boss and everyone's kind of waiting on him and his wife is kind of his assistant who, uh, you know, uh, does what, uh, what he asks of her. And um, I think um, in, you know, this kind of macho manhood, actually, that is present in the church. You know, I, I can't say that, that, you know, the church doesn't promote that, but I don't think that macho manhood is... Uh, the picture of manhood that the Bible gives us. Because the, the ultimate picture that the Bible gives us of what it means to be a man is the true man, Jesus. He is what a man is meant to be. And uh, he's not macho. Um, he's wise. He's compassionate. He's caring. And, um, and so really what we're looking at is a study of Jesus. And, um, but at the same time, the Bible does have distinctives of that, that men and women do have different callings. And uh, some of those distinctives we see really clearly in a really beautiful way in this passage. Um, and that there are two especially dramatic, moving moments that we see Judah and Joseph becoming true men of God. And, um, you know, of course, Joseph, Joseph and Judah are not perfect. We'll look at that as well. They're not perfect men. They're not, uh, in many ways, they're not men that you'd want to be like in some of their, uh, in some of their history. Um, they're both flawed, but God has been, at, uh, the work of God has begun, we begin to see the work of God in their lives in this passage. And so uh, I want to look at this morning, um, what does it look like when God begins to work in a man? And we're going to answer that by, by looking at two questions. What makes a man? And who makes a man? What makes a man? What, what, what does a man look like as the Bible uh, describes it to us? And second, who is the one who forms and makes a man? And um, before we... Now, before we look at those two questions, you know, some of you gals in the room might be saying, okay, do I turn off now? Um, this is, a, is this a sermon for men, and uh, this doesn't really have any application to me? Well, let me just say a couple things to that. First of all, 
Um, the, the question uh, of manhood, uh, you know, men and women are distinct in the Bible, but we're also both made in the image of God. And so um, there, there's, a much, there's a tremendous amount of shared humanity that we have that's obvious. And so many of the things that I'm going to say, actually, you know, they apply to men, they also apply to women. And I, I'm not going to say these are only for men. But I, I am going to speak of them in, in the distinctive of men. So there's much that you, that, that, that you can glean and that, and that applies to women as well. But the other thing is that if you're a woman, you have men in your life. You have brothers. You have uh, fathers, grandfathers. You have um, uh, brothers in Christ. You have uh, husbands. You have sons. And the question of what kind of man is God making all these men into to be is an important question uh, for you to think through. What's a biblical vision for all these men that God's put in my life? What is his vision for them? An important piece is especially if your wife and you might hear a sermon like this, and you might be like, wow, I just got a lot of ammo for my, uh, for my husband. I'm loaded up. Pastor Nate said, you, you need to be like this. And listen, that's not what this sermon is for. It's not ammo. But, but you know what the Bible says is the way that you uh, encourage your husband to be a man is the Bible says you respect him. And what that means, actually, is that you don't treat him the way he is now. You treat him who he is becoming who he is in Christ. And so um, these are the things that you begin to look at and you say, the Holy Spirit is at work in my husband. Where do I already see these things? And where can I name them? Where can I encourage those things? And um, as an encouragement, where are the things that I can pray for? So um, I think this is applicable. There's, there's something for all of us in this passage, so I don't want to just uh, limit a sermon on manhood to the men. It's for all of us as, as a church uh, to be thinking through. So two questions uh, we're going to be looking at. Uh, Together, first question, what makes a man? And um, I think in this passage shows us that there are two qualities in particular that the Bible points out uh, about God's calling for men. The first is is that men are called to leadership. Men are called to leadership. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Look at at verse 1. Now, uh, the famine was severe in the land. There's a crisis happening. Okay. There's the, man, the, the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that, had, uh, that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with, unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why do you treat me so badly as to t- uh, tell the man that you had another brother? Okay, so here's Jacob. Jacob's the, the dad, the, or the grandfather. He's got 12 sons, and they, they're, they're all married. They all have children. So he's the patriarch, and he's responsible for um, this, uh, you know, clan. And um, there's, a, uh, there's a famine going on. Um, they don't have food. He's already lost uh, one son, Joseph, that he thinks is dead. And now he's got another son, uh, Simeon. Last week we saw Joseph took him hostage, and he's now in jail in Egypt. And now Joseph says, I want you to bring another son. So he's afraid he's going to lose another son. There's no food uh, for, for anyone. And basically what he says in the middle of this crisis, you know, everyone's asking him, right? Everyone's like, Jacob, what are we going to do? You can picture everyone like, what's the plan? What are we going to do? And he's just kind of freezing up. And he says, why don't you go down and just get us a little food? You know, it's like going down to Egypt. It's like, can you just run to the market and get us a little food? And, uh, and basically, he's ignoring all the problems. You know, well, first of all, the guy said, we can't come down there unless Benjamin's coming with me. He's like, I don't want to 
I don't want to send Benjamin. I don't want to lose another son. He's, uh, he's living in fear. He's ignoring the crisis. And, uh, and he's not acting. He's not being decisive. He's, not, um, he's confused, and the confusion is freezing him. And then in the midst of that, he even blames Judah. He says, why do you tell him you had more brothers? You know, as if you know, he's blaming him. And so when he doesn't know what to do, he's blaming others and he's freezing up. And um, this is what happens when men feel out of control, uh, when they feel incompetent, they freeze up. They don't know what to do. You know, when there's this chaos, there's demands that are being put on them, and they don't want to act. They want to retreat. You know, I, I just, a couple weeks ago, I came home, and, you know, all my kids were talking to me and asking me questions, and I, something, I don't know, I was occupied with things in the church. I just felt the weight, and I'm sitting at the dinner table, and my kids are, like, going like this, hello, you know, what's wrong with Dad? Is he awake? And, and there's just this, there's too much crisis, too much demand, too much asking, and, and, and it just frees up. I don't even know what to do. I can't even talk. I don't even, I can't even listen to you. All you hear is noise. And um, because men want to be able to manage things. They want to be, they want to know what they're doing. I know how to do this. I know how to fix this. I know how to solve this. And uh, actually, We've had, uh, it's funny, we've had a, a, our toilet seat has been broken for three weeks. And there's been a box right next to the toilet with a new toilet seat in there. And I didn't know how to get the old toilet seat off. And I, so I tried like three times. And then, and I just, and I'm like, gosh, I'm sure any other husband in our church knows how to get this toilet seat off. And I don't. So I'm just, I just pretend it's not there. I'd be fine with the box sitting next to the broken toilet seat indefinitely. That'd be fine as long as I don't have to think about it because we're afraid of incompetence. And when there's incompetence, we, uh, when, when, when I feel incompetent, when I don't know what to manage, I, I, I want to avoid. And I want to freeze up and I don't want to walk into the darkness and the confusion. And if that's the case with a broken toilet seat, put into a family where you have a, a wandering child who's making poor decisions or you have uh, financial pressure on a family. And if a man doesn't even want to walk into a broken toilet, she- toilet seat, how much does he want to walk into the darkness and confusion and crisis of all of that? And what we see happening in this passage is that uh, Jacob is avoiding all of these things. And um, looking for some small solution. And, you know, I let me just say this. I, I know for me... Uh, I have certain things I go to that I feel really competent in. So, like, reading books is something I, I feel competent in. I, I, I feel smart. I know what this is about. I can give a sermon on it. This is what I do. And, um, and it, it is a place uh, of escape and control and that I know what to do. And many of us have certain places like that. And those places aren't bad. Obviously, books aren't bad. You have places that you go to where you feel, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing here. I'm confident. But when we go to those places... Um, to avoid the crisis, avoid the darkness where we need to be present, where we need to lead, where Jacob was needing to lead. We are compromising our manhood. And what we see happening in Judah, this is Judah. Judah who in chapter 37, it was his idea to, to sell Joseph into slavery. And then in chapter 38, this is Judah who uh, thought his daughter-in-law was a prostitute and slept with her and got her pregnant. <laughs> Judah, who's not a great guy, God has been working in, and look at what happens uh, in verse 8. And Judah said to Israel's father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge 
for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, uh, then let me bear the blame. He says, we need, action needs to happen. We're starving. Our kids are starving. And we need to go to Egypt. And I don't know what's going to happen when we go there. But I will take responsibility. I will be the pledge. And I will act. And uh, he is willing to enter into the darkness, into the confusion, and be present in it. And this is what leadership is is acting and deciding even in the midst of confusion. And, and uh, in particular, we see two things that leadership, the leadership of a man involves. Two things. First of all, it involves taking responsibility. It involves taking responsibility. That's what Judah says. He says this, this line, I will be a pledge for his safety. I will take responsibility on it. This falls on me. I will take. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't control it. I can't control what the prime minister guy is going to do. He's already taken one of our sons as prisoner. I don't know what he's going to do, but I'll take responsibility. And I'll, and I'll trust God in the midst of that. He's going to take responsibility. And um, this is an important thing. What he's doing, basically, he's becoming the leader of the family, Judah is. He's speaking for the brothers, and he's even speaking for, for Jacob, right? He's telling Jacob, this is what we need to do. And in the Bible, um, we call what Judah is being here, a covenant representative, the covenant head. He's representing the brothers, he's representing all the children, and he's talking for them. Now, in the Bible, let me just take a minute. This is a really important concept, covenant representative, because, you know, if you read through the Old Testament, if you've read through the Old Testament, the Old Testament is about the people of Israel, right? And it's about how God interacts with this chosen people that he chooses. But actually, if you read through the Old Testament, it's not so much about the people, it's about this leader who's leading the people. And that the way God deals with his people is through the leader. Even the names of the books follow the name. You know, so you have, you have, you know, we've been in Genesis. We've seen Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now Joseph and Judah. And then we have Moses in Exodus. And then we have Joshua. There's a book named Joshua. And then there's the judges. And then there's Samuel as the prophet. And then there's David and, the, uh, and Solomon and uh, the kings of Israel. And, uh, and then you have uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and all these people, the whole Old Testament is looking for this covenant leader who takes responsibility for the people and the way God deals with the people has to do with the faithfulness of this leader. He deals with them through this leader. He appoints someone who is a covenant representative. And this is how God has actually structured our lives. This is how he structured families, right? Um, that when the Bible says that the... That the um, that the man is the head of the household, it means that he is responsible for the household. And, uh, and the Bible also says that men are called to lead in the church, that they're responsible for guard, guarding the church, that the church stays faithful to the scriptures and uh, faithful to its mission and faithful in its, in its worship, that men are called to take responsibility. Now, let me just say one comment about that. Um, one of the things that's important uh, to say is that nowhere does it say that men are smarter more gifted, more important than women, and that's why they're called the heads or the leaders. Because actually, most of us know they're not, <laughs> right? I mean, you look in our church, uh, we have tons of tremendously uh, smart, um, visionary uh, women who are actually they're more dependable than men. Uh, they get things done. They do, they read their Bibles more often. They pray more. They take their faith more seriously, and so it would seem only natural that they would be the leaders. And oftentimes, that's what we look at. We say, well, they're more gifted, so they should be the leaders. But the Bible never says that men should, uh, are the leaders 
because of their giftedness. In fact, they're not, they're not more gifted oftentimes. What they are called to is to take responsibility. The buck stops with them. And of course, a wise man is going to say, well, I know that I'm not smarter than anyone else, so I need input <laughs> from, from the women. And I'm a, um, but ultimately, the responsibility for the church and our families falls on the men. And that's what leadership means, is taking responsibility. And, um, and of course, this begins uh, back in the garden, in, uh, with Adam and Eve in the garden. What's happening there? There's this talking serpent that comes and is attacking, who's Satan, is attacking Adam's wife. And he's deceiving her and saying, listen, God's evil and you shouldn't trust him and you should do whatever you want. And it turns out, what's the man doing? Nothing. He was with her, it says. He was standing there and he was silent. There was confusion. Uh, there was uh, danger. And he did nothing. He didn't step into it. He didn't act. He didn't act decisively. And, uh, you know, what should he have done? Well, you know, oftentimes you think, you know, men think, gosh, I've I got to be really smart. Adam should have had a really witty comeback for the serpent. No, that's why. This, i got a Bible verse. Of why that's not true? Well, he didn't have a Bible verse. God had told him not to do that. But, you know, it wasn't. He should have just killed the serpent. That's what he should have done. He's like, I've just got to do something. i just got to act. And for many of us, we don't want to act. And we compromise our manhood when there is confusion and darkness and we don't enter into it. We are compromising our manhood. And um, in many ways, the way that the Bible sees the problems of the world is when men do not take responsibility in the midst of crisis and confusion. They retreat. That's what happened in the garden. And of course, the salvation of the world. What is the hope of the world? It's a man, Jesus Christ, God himself, coming as a man, and he looks at the mess of humanity and he takes responsibility of it. The blame for all of the sins of the world he takes upon himself. He doesn't walk away from it. He enters into the darkness. And he takes the mess of the world upon himself and he takes responsibility. And so the first thing about um, the leadership that men are called to is, uh, taking respons- uh, is taking responsibility. But what Jesus also shows us is that taking responsibility includes, involves sacrifice. It involves taking responsibility and also involves sacrifice. That for Jesus to take responsibility, he had to die for us. He had to suffer. And in many ways in the Bible, that's, that's the Bible's picture of what does it mean to be a man. Being a man means dying for others. Using your strength sacrificially for the good of others. To, die, to become a man means to die for others. In some ways, to be a man, uh, the greatest tragedy of manhood is that I would live my whole life and not die for someone else. That might mean physically dying or just means dying to myself. The tragedy of manhood would be that I would live my whole life and not die for another. And, um, And you see this with Judah. The willingness for him to sacrifice for the sake of his family. Look at verse 9. I will be a pledge of safety. Uh, from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame. Here, Judah is a preview of the Lord Jesus. He took the blame for our sin to, bring, to restore us to God. Uh, Judah is a preview of the Lord Jesus. He's offering to sacrifice himself. And... Um, you know, when people in our culture hear that men are called to be the heads of the households or to lead, 
uh, they retreat from that because it, it sounds like men bossing people around and getting other people to serve them. But Jesus is really clear. He says, he says when the, the Son of Man came, the Son of Man, that title, the Son of Man, means the King of the world. That's what, from the Old Testament, it's the name for the Messiah. So the, when the Son of Man comes, the King of the world did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is what biblical leadership is. It is sacrifice and dying and in, in, in offering ourselves up for others. So in a family, what that looks like, you know, a family doesn't have enough food, you know, they're poor or something, you know, and they can't provide enough food, who doesn't eat? Does it say, well, the man's the biggest and the most important, so he, he should eat first. No, he's the one that doesn't get the food, you know. I, I don't know what that's... You're going to have to apply it to your own families of what that looks like. But I, I think that's been a helpful thing for me to think through of that my calling as a husband and as a father is not that everyone does what I say, but I'm there to serve and to sacrifice. And what does sacrifice look like? Let me just tell you, boys, little boys in here, you see me right here? You see how uh, God's giving you those muscles? Look at me here, boys. Feel right here. Feel your muscles like this. You feel that? God, God's gift to you, boys, is he's given you strength. And one of the big questions for your life, what are you going to do with these muscles, with this strength? You know, the Proverbs says the glory of a young man is his strength. And those muscles are not for pounding on your sister, Okay. <laughs> Those muscles are for serving your sisters and caring for them and sacrificing so that you go out and you die for your sisters and you protect them, right? That's what we're called to as men. That's what, these are, this is the vision that we have uh, for men who take responsibility and sacrifice. So on the one hand, um, what, it, what makes a man? Men are called to leadership which involves taking responsibility, using their strength for the good of others. Um, but there, there's an other side that we see, and that, that's what we see Judah doing. That's what we see God forming in Judah. But also we see in this passage that men are called to love. They're called to leadership and to love, which of course these two go together. And we see this other side of manhood in Joseph and what God's doing with, in Joseph's life. So what happens to these brothers, they come down to Egypt, they're saying to Joseph, hey, we need some more bread, we brought money, and uh, we brought some presents for you. And all of a sudden they say, hey, we're bringing you into this feast. Joseph wants to have a feast with you. And they don't know it's their brother yet. And uh, so they bring him into this feast, and, uh, and Joseph uh, comes in to see uh, his brothers. Uh, it's been 22 years uh, since they sold him into slavery. And here's Joseph. Joseph is an extremely capable man. He is led, he's an administrator. He's led Egypt through this relief effort. He's extremely wealthy. He's extremely respected. But what God has been doing in Joseph's life is not just shaping his skills as a leader, but also shaping his heart making him tender-hearted. That's actually what he needs to be prepared for that we're going to see in the next passage is that God is preparing his heart. And um, he's been shaping his heart, the tenderness, and we see the tenderness uh, of Joseph's heart in this passage. You know, he's not vindictive against his brothers who sold him into slavery. But it says this, verse 26. Look at verse 26. And Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Moving, beautiful picture. Here's the prime minister of Egypt, powerful, wealthy. 
and he's brought to tears at the sight of his brothers, of his family, who are dear to him, who he loves. And actually, three times in this story, we find out that Joseph, uh, Joseph weeps. Last, uh, last week in chapter 42, he weeps, and he hides himself. Chapter 43, here, he weeps, and then he goes in the other room, and he just cries his eyes out. And then what we're going to find out is next, uh, in chapter 45, when he finally reveals to his brothers who he is, he's going to weep openly before them. And actually, he's going to weep so loudly that the Egyptians that are in the other room are going to hear him just bawling, and he's become this tender-hearted, emotional man, right? <laughs> the, uh, the, you know, the, the prime minister of Egypt is, uh, uh, there's a tenderness to him, and he displays his tenderness openly. This is one of the things that God is doing in his life to make him uh, into a man. And, um, and let me just say um, that, uh, you know, for many of us men, we usually fall off the horse on one side or the other. You know, some of us are... Uh, very sacrificial. We're hardworking. We'd do anything for our family. We would work hard. We'd work endless hours um, to provide a, a home for them, uh, security for them. Um, uh, and so we, in that sense, there's a sense where we willingly use our strength for the good of our family. And yet they may say to us, you know, but uh, that's all great. I love that. But where's, where's your heart? You know, how do you feel towards us? What's going on in, in your mind? Who are you really? And then for some of us, you know, we're very relational. We, we engage with people. We're loving. We pour out our hearts to a family. We tell our family how much we love them. And, uh, and yet the thing that's a challenge for us is actually to get to work, um, to uh, maybe find a job, find, you know, that I'm going I'm to, uh, you know, maybe laziness is more of our struggle. And what God is doing is he's bringing these two things together. And what I want to say in this passage is that a man's calling to love. You know, if that's you, where... Uh, hard work is the thing that you're drawn to. And and let me just, first of all, commend you that it is a good thing to work for your family, to sacrifice. That that is a good thing, and God commends that. The Bible, Proverbs commends that. But one of the most important things that will happen in your life is your ability to open your heart uh, to your family and to the people that are close to you. To be able to speak to them what is in your heart. And I know that for some of you, to even tell uh, your Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's, it's your extended family. Maybe it's your closest friends. Maybe it's your children. To tell them uh, how much you love them is, uh, seems impossible. And let me just tell you, it's not impossible. But that should be the biggest fight of your life. If you go through your whole life and you never, that, that, the heart is never opened and cracked, it will be a great tragedy. It will be a tragedy for your family and it will be a tragedy for you. That will be the thrill of your life when you can open your heart to them. And so that's what we see in Joseph. Joseph and Judah, together, these two sides of manhood. And let me just say, this is a beautiful picture. Men who lead and take responsibility and sacrifice and with tender hearts towards people. This is not macho, biblical, man is the boss, <laughs> garbage. This is Christ, and it is beautiful. Now, for many of us as men, we hear something like that, and we say, yeah, I, I, I think it's beautiful, but I'm not encouraged by this. Because I'm not really sure if, if this is even a possibility for me. And I'll tell you that that's true for me, uh, writing this <laughs> sermon and 
How many of these things this week were not present in my own life? And, um, and one of the things that we have to do when we hear this, that this is our calling as men, the first thing that we need to do is embrace the fact that we're not all these things. And, uh, and often what happens is um, we feel all the pressure. My family needs me. They need me engaged. They need me loving them. They need me teaching them the Bible. They need me making decisions, entering into crisis, being creative and, and leading. And uh, my work needs me. My church needs me to lead. And there's so much pressure, and it becomes crushing to us. And we say, gosh, everyone needs a man in their life. But do we have a man in our life? And the reality of the Bible is, is that before, while we're still unmanly, God is the man to us. Think of these things. It takes responsibility. Who's taking responsibility for us? Jesus did. While we were still sinners, he gladly took responsibility. He said, I'm going to cover you. I'm going to guard you. I'm going to own you. I'm going to buy you. I'm going to rescue you. He does take responsibility for us. And he will sacrifice for us. We're not the only ones sacrificing. God, Jesus sacrificed for us way, more, way before we sacrificed uh, for anyone else or for him. And he loves us. This picture of Joseph weeping for his brothers, that's what Jesus does towards us. He loves us, and he'll tell us that he loves us. And so we need to understand that our standing before God is not based on how manly we are or how much we lead and how wise and how well we know the Bible and how, how much we take care of our family. Our standing is because of what Christ has done for us. And when we can really embrace that and say, God took responsibility for me. He sacrificed for me. And we feel that security. We can begin to say, well, can that kind of manhood begin to be formed in my life? Can I have that too? Because when I don't feel condemned, then all of a sudden I can say, well, maybe I want that. I would love to have that in my life. And um, I put a, 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 a quote for you on page three of your bulletin. If you open up your bulletin there, from C.S. Lewis, this is a, a, a little essay he wrote called The ne Necessity of Chivalry. It's in a little book called Present Concerns, where he talks about the two sides of a man. You know, there's the kind of, some men are very doer, get things done, sacrifice, and other men are, you know, open-hearted and relational. How do we become both these things? And he talks about this is what chivalry and the kind of medieval chivalry was all about, and this is what he says. The medieval ideal brought together two things which have no natural tendency to gravitate towards one another. It brought them together for that very reason. It taught humility and forbearance to the great warrior because everyone knew by experience how much he usually needed that lesson. It demanded valor of the urbane and modest man because everyone knew that he was as likely as not to be a milksop. The man who combines both characters, the knight, is a work not of nature but of art of an art which has human beings instead of canvas or marble for its medium. And what he says is that the work of manhood is a work of art. And if it's a work of art, that means there must be an artist. There must be someone who's working on us. And, um, and this leads to the second question I want to answer and, um, briefly. is First of all, what makes a man? A man is called to lead and to love. But second, who makes a man? Who is the one who makes a man? And, um, you know, even though we read through this passage, and you see Joseph and Judah are these kind of models of manhood. Judah is taking responsibility for his family, stepping into the confusion and the crisis and acting decisively. And we see Joseph, whose heart is broken and opened up to his brothers, who he loves, and he's weeping over them. But I think in many ways, 
uh, Jacob, I, I know for me, is, is, for many of us as men, is the one that we identify with the most. Because here's Jacob, um, the guy who's got the crisis going on. He's like, uh, I don't know what to do. Can you just run to Egypt and get a little food and still the crisis for a little bit? And he's not acting. He's not, he's not you know, taking anything seriously. And he's running away. And yet, we see him transform in this passage just in a few verses. And he does end up doing something. He's weak. He's afraid. And yet, he does act. And you see this there um, in verse 11. He does end up risking for his family. Look at verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little uh, uh, honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take uh, double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise Go again to the man. And so there's this new kind of assertiveness. There's a kind of creativity. Okay, these are the things you need to bring. There's a decisiveness. He has a plan, and he's willing to even risk sending his son. He doesn't, he doesn't want to lose Benjamin again, but he's willing to take the risk. And, um, and the question is, where does this transformation, this new life come from, this new Jacob? Where does that come from? And I think it comes in that next verse. Look at what it says. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And that little phrase, God Almighty, that name, that's El Shaddai, is a name that appears a number of times in the book of Genesis. It was the name that God said to Abraham, my name is, is El Shaddai, and, and to Isaac, and to Jacob. And the God who had revealed himself, who had been faithful, so that when Jacob was homeless... And uh, his brother wanted to kill him, and he had nothing, and he ran away. He ran away from the homeless land, you know, the promised land, and he was, uh, and he, you know, w- was in the woods sleeping on a rock with nothing. The God who was with him there, and when he went into slavery and uh, was a slave to his uncle for 20 years, the God who was with him and brought him home and gave him land and gave him family, the God who had been good on his promises. He says, the only way I can step into this is if I believe El Shaddai, if I remember if El Shaddai's presence. If I remember him. And um, God makes a man by teaching him to remember and to rest in God's promises. This is how God makes a man, by teaching him to remember and to rest in God's promises. And uh, when a family is in turmoil, being a man does not mean you know all the answers and you know what's going to happen and you can engineer everything. It means walking into it and resting in the God who has been faithful to us and has promised himself to be faithful to us. And I want to read one more quote to you. Sorry, this is another, I know there's a little longer quote. Turn to page three in your bulletin. This is from Larry Crabb. I think this is a great summary of how God forms us into being men. When a man flees the terror of mystery for the comforts of management, he compromises himself. When we look to things that we can manage and control, we are compromising himself. This is what he says. A man ruled by the demand that he always know what to do cannot experience the deep joys of manhood. He has violated his calling and betrayed his nature. God calls a man to speak into darkness, to remember who God is and what he has revealed about life. 
and with that memory upmost in his mind to move into his relationships and responsibilities with the imaginative strength of Christ. What I love about that is being a man does not mean you have all the answers and you know how to do everything. It means that you remember God. You remember his promises. And the question to you as men is, can you do that? Can you remember Christ? And, um, and what that also means is that the way to be a man is that God has to be central to your life. In your weakness, he is your strength. And let me just say, if you're here today and uh, you would not call yourself a Christian, um, and you would not say that, you know, God is the, cent- the centerpiece of my life. He is the life that lives in me. He is the thing that I hope in, that I trust in. It is my only hope. I am a lost without Jesus. If you haven't said that, you can't become a man. You can only go to things where you are in control and where you can manage. But if you put God at the center of your life, the deep joy of manhood can begin to be formed in you. And so um, the hope is that, uh, that as a church, this would be a place where we're both raising future men, these boys, and, uh, and encouraging and pressing one another on to remember our God and to rest in his promises. Let's pray together.